Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Hey, Sean Stewart, great to be in conversation with you this, the 28th of October. Hey, guys. Great to connect, guys. Uh, Two topics on my mind today for the roundtable. First, um, we've got to talk about the ongoing uh, hearings into the Emergency Act, this uh, inquiry that's underway in Ottawa. We have testimony today by Peter Soli, the former Ottawa police chief. Uh, I think this is effectively surely a star witness, but I think it's a good moment as we've allowed a couple of weeks now of of these hearings to go on to kind of check in with you two as to say, what are we learning here? What has this inquiry revealed? And maybe beyond simply, was it right to an appropriate to implement, to enact the Emergencies Act? Uh, What is this saying about our institutions? Stuart, I want to come to you first because you are our man in Ottawa. And we know that the citizens of Ottawa, the denizens of Byward Market and the Ottawa downtown core were extremely annoyed about the disruptions that the convoy uh, created in their city. And there was a lot of support for the Emergencies Act. Has that changed? Have public perceptions changed as the as this inquiry has gone on? And frankly, some somewhat jaw-dropping, you know, findings and revelations have been made to the public. Yeah, I would say that the general consensus in Ottawa is pretty much the same. And actually, we just had a mayor election and the the candidate that came in second, sort of one of the two front runners, um, her big claim to fame was when she sort of came out against the convoy and was marching in the streets at that time. Um, so I think that's, you know, nobody in Ottawa, I think, was um, angry about the use of the Emergencies Act. And I would say there's a little bit of an anticlimactic feeling to this inquiry because I think you know, we we had some pieces about this early on. It seemed to me so obviously not appropriate to use the uh, Emergencies Act in this moment. But, you know, the thing I said uh, almost immediately, too, was that I just don't think there's any political consequences for using it. Um, I think the sense I get in Ottawa, and I think this is sort of pervasive around the country, is that people just want their politicians and their leaders to act. And the details about how they do it and what they use to do it are probably less important than, you know, Ottawa was gridlocked at the time. And I have been trying to sort of push some Ipsos polling and some other polling that said Canadians were more sympathetic to the ideas of the convoy than I think people realize, but they were not sympathetic to the convoy or the truckers. That I think is totally clear in the polling. And I think the idea that people have is that you know, for Trudeau, he probably did the thing he had to do as much as I disagree with that perspective. Um, I think probably more interesting is the little drama happening with the Ontario Premier Doug Ford right now, who is refusing to come to the inquiry. And I think that tells us a little bit about the political incentives here is that Trudeau was happy to come down and testify. 
Doug Ford is trying to avoid it at all costs. And I think that tells us something. Sean, there has been, at least amongst the uh, the pundit class, a sense that, you know, something is kind of rotten in Denmark <laughs> and that this, uh, this inquiry has revealed um, a kind of chaos, confusion, um, just a kind of lassitude inside our our institutions, not just the institutions of the Ottawa uh, Police Department, but uh, those of uh, the federal government. I mean, what's your take? Is that an overreach? Um, I don't know. I'm left with a sense that a lot of people here were passing the uh, passing the puck, um, not putting it in the net, and um, the blame game goes around and around and around. And I worry maybe with Stuart at the end of the day that there are fewer, few of any real implications for anyone career-wise or others uh, to encapsulate what was a, a kind of cross the board failure. I, I think um, Roger and Stuart of uh, these hearings so far have given us a window into public policing and law enforcement in this country. And I've been struck by how impotent they are. Uh, you know, basic public order and public safety uh, is, is foundational. Um, we've seen in the recent Vancouver elections, for instance, something that we've been covering at the hub, um, that the public is clamoring um, for the restoration of, of public order and the enforcement of basic laws on the books. and. Um, you know, I watched a bit of the testimony this morning. One can't help but think, guys, that the riots that followed George Floyd's murder um, has had a lasting effect um, throughout law enforcement, not just the United States, but in Canada, and, and left these organizations um, seemingly paralyzed and incapable of carrying out their basic function, um, which is uh, which is public order. Uh, you know, that's not going to get solved in these hearings. Um, but as uh, Jeff Ross, our uh, journalism fellow, has outlined in a, in a few pieces for us over the past um, several weeks, you know, it, it seems to me that public safety, which was off the kind of policy agenda and political agenda for some time, is back with a vengeance. And um, I think that's going to require not just changes at the head of a lot of these police forces across the country, but frankly, a kind of cultural change, uh, a recognition of what their basic role is. It's not social justice. It is fundamentally about uh, in enforcing, enforcing the law. Well, I think there is a bigger, you know, we've written about it at the Hub of Fair Deal, but state capacity. And, uh, you know, City of Toronto, it's a billion dollar plus uh, policing budget. Ottawa, it looks like their budget submitted for the coming year, $400 million. Um, we spend a lot of money on policing in this country. And I think we do that in part because we believe that when there are circumstances like the trucker convoy, the protest, uh, like the G7 uh, meetings uh, in Toronto a decade ago that um, we as citizens want that capacity. We want the, the law, the capacity for law and order. But again, I look back and I, I think you can see the mistakes of the, what was it? The G8 meetings, you know, in Toronto, the kettling, the, the uh, unlawful arrests. Uh, there, were, there were a whole series of debacles uh, around 
around that event. So in a sense, why should we be surprised that the trucker convoy similarly was botched as a, a public policing exercise? And I think at a certain point, I'd like to see Canadians get a little, maybe a little more American, frankly, a little more irate about the quality of public services as they're delivered at the municipal level. This is the level of government that is closest to all of us, closest to our lives. And I think we put up with, Stuart, an incredible amount of mediocrity, waste, duplication, and uh, we pay for it. We pay for it gladly in, uh, you know, not insignificant, you know, property taxes that are you know, leveled on all of us. And you can even throw in the education system and, a, and a, you know, the ongoing exodus, unfortunately, from the public education system to, to private and religious schooling, because there's similarly a sense that there is a culture of unaccountability of, um, you know, spendthrift ways that really are there to protect and inculcate the, the privileges of a ruling bureaucratic and kind of unionized uh, workforce. Okay. I made my official rant. I only get one a show. That was it. <laughs> Over to you, Stuart. <laughs> yeah, I actually was going to come in here. My plan for this show was to come in and express some sympathy for the former police chief, Peter Slowly, but you, we were read the, the, the budget numbers before we started recording and it kind of fired me up. Um, <laughs> so I think my original take on this was that this was one of those strange situations. And I kind of compared it to, you know, if you're, if you watch football, um, some new sensation, some new tactic, like the wildcat offense takes the whole league by storm. And then people figure it out in a couple of weeks. Um, and my sense was that was what happened with the trucker protest was that they just weren't expecting that. And they were warned with intelligence that it was going to happen, but there were similar concerns at the previous United We Roll protest, and that never really materialized. And they were kind of expecting something similar. But so Stuart, I mean, just one small aside, they had contracts, the city of Ottawa with tow truck companies uh, that they could have exercised to move a lot of these trucks. Yet um, some of those tow truck companies refused to honor uh, the contracts and, and, the city, you know, dithered. They didn't uh, try to enforce their rights either in a court of law or in terms of, you know, firing. These companies are still employed by the city to this day as providers to the city of towing services. Yet they, you know, abysmally failed both as service providers and the bureaucracy failed in any way to enforce a contract. I'd, you know, I'd love to work like an employer like that. I mean, let's all just vote for like no accountability. Anything goes, you do what you want to do. I'll do what I want to do. We all feel good. I don't know, Sean, I just, when do people get excised about this? Like, when do we reach a moment where we say, come on, this is a $400 million organization responsible for public safety and, uh, you know, basic security in Ottawa, and they completely blew it. Yes, the chief of police is gone, but I don't see other heads rolling at City Hall. In fact, Stuart's right. The recent mailgy results seem to suggest that the, the status quo has, you know, prevailed. Yeah. Uh, as, as one topic that we've been uh, documenting a lot at the Hub in recent weeks and months is the idea of um, quality of life. And in that context, we've spent a lot of time talking about housing and education and transit and all the rest. Um, but as Rehan Salam 
set out in a hub dialogue we did with them a few weeks ago, those all rest on a foundation of basic public safety. And what we're seeing in a lot of our major cities, you know, Vancouver being probably the best example, is a kind of breakdown in public order um, in a lot of parts of the city and a failure on the part of police services to carry out, as you say, Rudyard, Rudyard that like core function, right? You know, uh, <laughs> it's not like police uh, have a, a, a magnitude of different mandates. There's one, enforce the law. Um, you know, one of the pieces we ran this week um, by Raheem Mohammed and his co-author that I thought was so fascinating is they documented, they pushed back against the argument that the crime rate is falling in Vancouver. Well, of course it's falling if you stop enforcing drug offenses, you know, more than two decades ago. It's like, yeah, we have no murder if, they, if we don't enforce murder. Um, and so I do, you know, I'm a bit more optimistic than you, Rudyard. I do think that this issue of public safety and public order is starting to kind of reach uh, reach a level of salience with the public. We've seen that in some of the results across the country in municipal elections. And, you know, if I was advising provincial governments or provincial parties, I'd be kind of leaning into this issue. And maybe just one final point, just to put a, 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 a fine point on this, I'm recording this episode today in New York City. We have a gubernatorial election in two weeks, just in less than two weeks. The Republican candidate in the state of New York is closed the gap significantly with the Democratic incumbent fundamentally on this issue of public safety and public order. And well, there's the situation is slightly different in the United States. The basic, the basic insight is the same. Um, that our we need to expect more out of public policing and law enforcement than we've seen over the past two years. Well, is that here, something quickly? Here, here, yeah, go ahead, sir. You're gonna um, get the last word as our Ottawa resident, our Ottawa taxpayer. <laughs> that no small <laughs> doubt is funding. You know that four hundred billion, uh, four hundred, the four hundred million dollar uh, police services budget. How does that feel? <laughs> feels fantastic. Um, <laughs> but I will like the thing I want to point out, I think is a really important thing in all this is that, you know, fundamentally to me, this is a failure of leadership on a whole bunch of different levels. And for better or for worse, and I would say for worse, Justin Trudeau using the Emergencies Act was seen as an act of leadership. And this is kind of the problem you get when you have these cascading leadership failures is that it allows, you know, I don't want to call it a liberal but it can allow for a liberal actions uh, to be sort of the trump card uh, once all of the, the normal avenues have been exhausted. So I would just say, you know, the, the police leadership that we're seeing at this inquiry, it is, it's, you can't watch it. Like it's cringeworthy. You want to watch through your uh, fingers as you cover your eyes. Um, and it's the kind of thing that leads to really bad outcomes. And I think we saw an example of that bad outcome this year it's something to be concerned about because public safety is one of those things that once people start voting on that, and that's a top of mind concern, they don't care about how it gets done. They just want it to get done. Yeah. Well, we're burning down churches, running open air drug marts, um, homeless encampments, um, inability seemingly to deal with, you know, basic uh, public security issues like the convoy, which I don't think in any way came close to the standard of the emergency act, but maybe Stuart ultimately is right that it was simply the result of a cascading series of failures of leadership that then brings about this, uh, you know, horrible result in terms of our collective civil liberties. Well, let's put a pin guys into 
that uh, half, first half of uh, the Hub Roundtable. When we come back on the other side, we're going to talk about another institution that made a big call this week. The Bank of Canada comes out with a surprise 50 basis point hike, lower than market expectations and lower than weeks of communication that the bank had seemingly been doing to set up a hawkish stance on inflation. All this happening as no discernible appreciation uh, progress has really occurred in terms of bringing inflation down. So we're going to have that debate for you and what it means for your pocketbook right after this break. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Well, that was uh, a song that I picked, guys. Um, Prince, you know, when doves cry, because I think it's got to be the new theme song for Tiff Mecklen and the Bank of Canada coming out of uh, this surprise uh, dovish only, and I can't believe I'm saying only 50-point uh, rate hike. But uh, to come to you first, Sean, Bank of Canada, critical institution, it's independence, critical to how we run our currency as a store of value, to how we confront right now the single biggest uh, monetary challenge uh, in 40 years, uh, high painful inflation that is kind of destroying people's uh, purchasing power across the country. Allegations this week, Sean, that the bank is feeling the political pressure and this rate hike decision disturbingly could have been the result of the bank, uh, I don't know, trying to insulate itself against its political opponents. Let's go there first. Do you think that's a credible theory for why the bank surprised on the dovish side, despite the ongoing severe effects and risks of inflation vis-a-vis the Canadian economy? Yeah, I think the short answer is yes. Um, you know, the, the the claim here, it's important to emphasize, is not that there was some form of active or direct political interference on the part of any elected official and his or her staff. The, the, the argument is that the Bank of Canada essentially internalized in its own decision making the kind of political conditions and the political arguments being made about monetary policy. You know, the, the two examples that are cited, I think, in really good reporting by Bloomberg on the subject is a letter from NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, who's not simply the third party leader in parliament, of course. He's responsible for um, propping up and sustaining um, the, the Trudeau government in this minority context. The second is a Globe and Mail op-ed from an outgoing uh, senior Trudeau liberal uh, and in both cases, Singh and, and this aide were essentially calling on the bank to pause or stop any rate increases. And, you know, one can't help but think that that 
that those arguments uh, ultimately found salience um, um, before uh, before this most recent decision. And that's that's a problem. And it's a problem because we've set up the whole process of monetary policy from the agreement between the government and the government of Canada and the bank to the appointment process of the, the governor, him or herself, to inoculate monetary policy decisions from political calculus. Um, and if it's if it is indeed the case that that's what's happened here, um, it's it's not good. It's not good for kind of process, but it's also not good for outcomes because, of course, the real risk here is that it 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 contributes to a kind of protracted uh, experience with with inflation. Just one final point, guys, and then I'll, I'll turn it over. You know, I can't help but think that there's been a lack of of commentary about this in, in recent days. Listeners will know that months ago when Pierre for the first time criticized bank policy and even put on the table that if elected prime minister, he would ultimately um, ask Tiff Macklem to resign, um, there was extraordinary reaction of, and you know a lot of uh, hand waving of, and, 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 and finger wagging about the independence of the bank and so on. Uh, in this case, we actually have uh, voices, political voices arguing against the bank's stated mandate as articulated by the government of Canada, and I haven't quite seen the same reaction. And I, I think that looks bad, not just on the Bank of Canada, but on the kind of institution of the media and the, and, and the kind of pundit class more generally. Mm. Uh, I think people will rightly see that um, as a kind of lack of symmetry um, Balance, yeah. in their criticism. Yeah, great, great point there, Sean. Uh, a new insight. I appreciate that. Uh, Stuart, to come to you, I think what, what surprises a lot of people, myself included, is that, yes, you could still say, you know, 50 points is a lot more than the traditional hike of 25. But in the messaging, in the press conference afterwards, he's, you know, as explicit as a central bank governor can be that, that this was a, a kind of moving towards a pause and wait and see kind of attitude. And I guess what what your thoughts, Stuart, on just, again, how, in terms of communications, do these organizations think? Because this is the same organization that told all of us in 2020 that, quote, interest rates would remain low for a very long, long time. I think they were used the word long twice. That certainly has not happened. And I wonder, just you know, as a member of the media and looking at, at the communications, like, oh, how bad is the credibility problem with the Bank of Canada at this point? And why would they have, have done this, this kind of volt fast of being all hawkish and rock ribbed and then, and then not only cutting to 50, but then have messaging afterwards that says, you know, we're moving towards a pause. Yeah, one of the things that happened at this week's announcement is that there was a whole bunch of new kind of journalists at the at the announcement. If you read Kevin Carmichael's column on this, it's usually just sort of financial journalists who go to these things, and there's a handful of them. Uh, there were broadcast journalists at this one this week, and Carmichael had a funny line about how, you know, normally the line from the uh, bank journalists would be, you know, why aren't you going as high as we expected? But the kind of sentiment from the broadcast journalist was, why are you destroying the economy? So <laughs> I think this is what I think Tiff Macklin is dealing with. And I wonder if maybe, you know, you, you can't, as the Bank of Canada governor, not notice that. 
that these are people who are putting news on the six o'clock news programs and you get a sense of where they're going with it from their questions. And I think he also has to think about, um, you know, spooking people. If they get the sense there's this huge recession coming, that's not great. Um, but um, that's uh, pretty weak sauce compared to uh, <laughs> the other side of the argument, which is that, you know, I was uh, talking to an economist on the phone yesterday for a story I'm working on on this, and I kind of pushed her to, you know, say, what is the worst case scenario here? Is it a big, bad recession or is it continuing uh, high inflation? And, you know, the idea of inflation becoming de-anchored where, all of a sudden there's no baseline and then wages start to rise and then we have no real sense of where what our money is worth that that's catastrophic and that is the situation that requires huge interest interest rate hikes and i think it's a pretty clear equation here about what is the worst case scenario yeah. um and if you're going to err on one side or the other you would err on the side of causing a recession to stop that other catastrophe from happening um i I've been reading Macklin's comments uh, this week, and I, I can see that, you know, they're looking at data from Canada, which is not as hot as the U.S. You know, the job numbers mm -hmm. are lower. Uh, I think they maybe are getting comfortable with where they're at. Um, mm -hmm. I, I but think Stuart, that's probably here's, less likely. Here's the problem. We don't, Canada doesn't exist in a bubble. Um, as I've, you know, mentioned in this program before, we're a small economy you know, sub 40 million people, we don't have a reserve currency, nobody needs to use our loonie to do anything to issue bonds to buy commodities that they can't do in USD euro, or yen. And if the Fed and there's every indication, you know, this Friday, there's increasing, you know, some hotter than expected wage numbers out in the US. If the Fed hikes 75 basis points next week, the ECB did 75 this week, if our monetary policy, if, if, if the brain trust there in Ottawa thinks that our monetary policy can diverge from that of this world's single largest and fastest appreciating reserve currency, the US dollar, well, good luck to them in the inflation fight, because what you're going to end up doing is you're going to take an already weak Canadian dollar and push it down probably below 70 cents, importing a ton of inflation, because hey, guess what, folks, unless you haven't looked... We are attached to the United States. We import an incredible amount of goods, services, food, uh, you know, metals, commodities in U.S. dollars that we have to pay for in Canadian dollars. And that, again, goes right into CPI. It goes right into core inflation. I just think, again, I worry here that, guys, and get your thoughts on this, Sean, a certain kind of hopium that is endemic in Canada where we... We think let's have our cake and eat it too. You know, let's not have a severe economic turn down uh, and let's bring inflation down too. As the bank says, it'll be 3% by the end of 2023. Well, look, if you believe that it's, you believe in the bank and you think it's going to be 3%, well, you know, all the power to you. But Sean, this again is the same institution that told us 24 months ago that interest rates were going to remain low for a very long, long time. I just, I, I just wonder, Sean, about a kind of Ottawa myopia, a kind of uh, a Canadian inclination to believe our own press and somehow think that we can do this on our own terms when it seems like just demonstrably the economy, the economics would say that you can't. 
Yeah, I think it's a, also an historical myopia. Um, one of the first episodes of Hub Dialogues, if you go back into our catalog, was a really great one. You know, you'll pardon me as the as the host. I was still getting my sea legs as a podcast host, but the guest was Christopher Reagan. You know, one of the country's leading economists, including on monetary policy issues. And one thing he said that has stayed with me is, in the 1980s, we learned how much it costs to mop up inflation. And it scared a generation away from the types of fiscal and monetary choices that may produce inflation. And it seems like over the past couple of years, we, we sort of lost um, that historical lesson. And now we're relearning, uh, relearning it. Um, and yet, uh, as both you and Stuart have said, we're trying to, trying to do so in a way that minimizes um, the downside. And I, I think what Chris would say if he was on with us um, is you, you can't. You know, Larry Summers has, has said a couple of times this week, I saw you citing this uh, on social media, uh, Rudyard, that there is not a, a historical case of any jurisdiction experiencing the type of inflation that we're experiencing and not bringing it under control without a recession, full stop. So, you know, if Tiff Mack- And not and only others- a recession, Sean, not, not this kind of parsing that the Bank of Canada is doing, you know, a mild turndown, a few quarters of subpar growth. It, it, it just doesn't seem credible to me. And they botched the communication on transitory. They're now botching the communication on, um, you know, pa- this pause- I mean, the bank economists in in papers on Thursday and Friday have just been withering about the bank in terms of you know it the confusion that it's creating. No one really knows, seemingly knows what Tiff Mecklen wants to do. Is he hot? Is he cold? Is he a dove? Is he a hawk? Is he listening to Prince or not? We don't know. Yeah, just the last thing I'll say about this, guys. Um, uh, we've just as as we've been talking today, we now have a date for the economic and fiscal update from Finance Minister Christia Freeland. It'll be next Thursday, November 3rd. And these issues are gonna loom very large. Um, just last, just in the past day or so, the Department of Finance released the final fiscal numbers for last year. There's been a marked improvement um, relative to projections on the size of the deficit. And most of the heavy lifting, of course, has been done by uh, inflation driving up government revenue. So not only is this a kind of political economy issue um, uh, in which people are increasingly facing the kind of consequences in their pocketbooks, um, but next week we'll have an update on what this means for uh, the, the government's bottom line. I, I guess in a nutshell- Sean, it's what still I just... a $90 billion deficit. So it's like they're trumpeting this as if the hey the deficit's way down. It's ninety billion dollars. It's like a quarter of the uh, or, or more than a quarter of total program expenditures. Right, right, you're, don't like get me talk wrong. about winning the ugly contest. <laughs> uh, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not defending. I guess my point is that the kind of political economy of inflation is here for uh, here with us for the foreseeable future. And I mentioned earlier um, the midterm elections in the US. I think Democrats thought that after the Dobbs decision and the overturning of Roe versus Wade, that they would have a bit of wind in their sails. And what we've seen in in recent uh, weeks 
is that the Republicans, notwithstanding how crazy Republican politics are, seem to be pulling away. And I, I think there are two issues, two reasons behind that. One is the public safety issue we talked about earlier. And the second um, is inflation and affordability. So this is, a, this is um, I think these are going to be the two issues that people are going to be talking about for the foreseeable future. Just goes to show uh, how insightful and discerning the hub roundtable is that we're, we're, we're picking up the, the two big questions I think um, voters are, are going to be zeroed in on for the coming months and, and even years. Well, great conversation today, guys. My just parting thoughts would be, you know, there's a lot of elite failure out there. We're seeing it right now in Ottawa with how the Emergencies Act and particularly how the convoy was managed. Um, don't assume that that elite failure doesn't extend to other Ottawa institutions. I, you know, certainly hope it doesn't extend to the Bank of Canada, but I think today, this week's flip-flop is another indication that our institutions are weak. And as Neil Ferguson uh, as powerfully written and others, institutions matter. And, you know, they need intestinal fortitude to sometimes do difficult things to assume the sacrifice and pain that I think is inevitable to bring inflation down, to have a successful fight against the immiseration uh, that high prices are, are causing for everyone. It's a far bigger cost to fail in the fight inflation than to, uh, you know, experience, albeit real pain and suffering that people are going to feel economically on their mortgages and higher debt servicing costs. There's no free lunch in economics. Um, and yet, once again, here we go, I guess, for a hot dog off the cart with no cash on the table. Um, everyone, thanks for listening. We always appreciate your feedback and comments. Stuart, if someone wants to send us an email completely objecting to everything I've said in the last half hour, where can they do that? Yeah, that would be to rudyard at the hub.ca. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, or <laughs> you could go to our editorial line at editorial at the hub.ca. Nice. Nice. Okay. Well, I won't remind listeners of the call signs that we assigned for both of you last week, but blowhard seems to have stuck with me at home here over the last seven days. So the family is listening. Okay, guys, we'll do this all again next Friday. Be well. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable edition of the Hub Dialogues. I'm Roger Griffiths, the executive director of the Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, the Hub's editor-in-chief. This program is produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's the Hub Dialogues that's waiting for you right now on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.